Rural hospital closures continue to rise, leaving rural Americans without local access to health care. A recent study analyzed the effect this has on geographically close hospitals and the burden on those facilities in the years after closure. So, how do hospitals monitor and measure the potential impact of nearby closures and prevent their own closure? Well, with an eye on the landscape, unrelenting advocacy, and a dedication to quality care for rural Americans. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hotshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 94 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. Okay, Rachel, we have discussed many times the alarming number of rural hospital closures uh, in the last decade or so. Uh, But today we are focusing on the overflow that comes from these hospital closures and how it impacts nearby communities and the facilities that serve patients in those surrounding areas. That's right. We're talking with someone whose research on rural hospital closures has measured the reality of the strain on the healthcare system when individual hospitals cease operations. Our guest today is Dr. Cheyenne Ramadani, uh, alum of Penn State College of Medicine and a transitional year resident at Bassett Network in upstate New York. Welcome to Rural Health Rising, Dr. Ramadani. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to meet you both. So to start, Dr. Ramadani, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work, both with Penn State and now as a physician and a resident? So, uh, thank you so much. So just to start off, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C., McLean, around in the suburbs of uh, McLean, Virginia. I went to mm. college at Ursinus College. There I majored in biology and Spanish. And over there, I was working with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And that's kind of where I got my first taste of healthcare studies and big system studies when I was uh, comparing international systems of healthcare. Then between medical school and um, undergrad, I worked with the, uh, in the Johns Hopkins system as an operations excellence staff member. And I oh, wow. we worked under the Armstrong Institute and we worked between, uh, the smaller hospitals within the DC area. Um, after that went to medical school, I got my MD and MED at Penn state. And then I started to really get involved with rural health care. And, uh, that's when I started to work with the clinical translational science Institute at Penn state. And then afterwards, um, uh, well, actually, even before that, I was uh, working with a few students, and we co-founded a nonprofit free clinic network for rural health care access. Then I went into some digital health work at Node Health, which we do digital health and strategy. And then uh, now I'm at Bassett as a transitional year and, you know, got a couple months left. That's an amazing background uh, for such a young guy. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of your specific work, and very intrigued by the work that you've done, John Hopkins. Um, impressive, uh, to say the least. And and I think, you know, we're going to vet that out a little bit in our discussion today at how you use that information to help you in, in what you're, the research you're doing now. Uh, and nothing more that uh, warms our heart than an individual that looks at rural health care and tries to help us figure out how we can sustain hospitals uh, across this country and to elevate uh, a level of awareness that I believe you're going to bring to our uh, podcast today, I think is is just critically important. So before we get into all of that, 
Um, we have a segment on each of our podcasts uh, in which we get to know um, our guest a little bit better. And we always ask our guests, and we start with the why. You know, why do you do what you do? What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning? Uh, so my, I think my why started pretty early in life. I had some exposure to healthcare through a family and more of an international setting. But I saw you know, the way my, my uncle and my grandfather both were clinicians in their community and the way they served their patients, the way they took care of their communities. And at such an early age, I saw that and I, I wanted to emulate that and I really wanted to be there. So that was what was in my head when I first started in this pathway in healthcare. Um, but then I also saw through serving in free clinics as I got my EMT license, as I volunteered in more hospitals, and I really started to get a picture of what healthcare was. I saw all the opportunities we had to prevent healthcare issues from becoming catastrophic, to go to communities and see the day-to-day -day barriers of accessing healthcare issues and what contributes to health in a community's landscape. And then all that afterwards is put into the setting of working in operations and understanding the health system and the health and these big academic health systems, both at Penn State and Johns Hopkins and beyond. And then with these experiences and this collective understanding, I found myself waking up every morning with the purpose of breaking down barriers to health access and creating safe operations, but then also innovating solutions with different teams and trying to learn from individuals like yourself and those who are ahead of me so I can bring my best to the table and help, you know, with whatever I'm, I'm going after in this respect. Yeah. And so certainly, uh, again, I'm learning so much. Well, EMT, I told you after, EMT, I, after I had a phone call with Dr. Yeah. Ramadani several weeks ago, I was like, you're going to love this yeah. guy we're going to have on the podcast. I already love him. He's love amazing. I All knew right. you would. So EMT working in one of my passions, the free clinics. Um, whether it's a federally qualified rural health clinic or even if it's just a free clinic, you know, we, uh, our hospital supports a free community clinic right now. And uh, we're involved in different capacities and some of our managers volunteer there, our pharmacists volunteers there, uh, and some of our clinicians volunteer there. It's really incredible, you know, when you touch the lives of someone who was raised in abject poverty, uh, who had no access to health care. And it's a, it's a remarkable uh, experience to be able to be part of that. And you, at such a young age, having the ability to not only serve in that capacity, but as a medic, as an EMT, um, I think it's just pretty incredible uh, to the work that you've done. And I'm excited to, to learn here today about some of those experiences. So, Rachel, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I, I'm, I know. I'm and I'm impressed. in my head trying to figure out the timeline of when did you find time to do all these things? Yeah. And did you, you start when you were so seven? far in your yeah, career? Right, exactly. exactly. Do you sleep? I mean, <laughs> good grief. <laughs> yeah, really. It's uh it's a work of passion, honestly. Everything was sort of a building block and I think I was directed in one way or another um into really wonderful opportunities that you know, paired me with like-minded people. And it was through the experiences of others I could grow. Honestly, if I'm going to, I can't sit here and say that this is just a one-man effort and, you know, I, I just charged along. I had, I stood on the shoulders of giants and I had wonderful colleagues that I collaborated with. And that's how I got to this, this place where I have a bit of a better understanding and it's consistent learning at the end of the day. So you have to wake up and you have to accept it all and kind of embrace it with open arms. 
All right. Um, so, you know, I, I, I want to, we, we've talked a little bit about your background. You've answered the why question. You know, for us, uh, why, don't you, why don't you start with the reason for the study? I mean, you didn't wake up one day and just be like, eh, uh, rule seems like a project. Um, you know, what were you hoping to get out of it? In other words, all right, you've identified that this is where you want to focus and have a concentration, but what's the end result? What do you want to get out of it? So I, I was already working with the CTSI in this project regarding diseases of despair. And this is a mm-hmm. big, now this sector is a massive research sector. Uh, in the beginning, when we were taking a look at it, uh, it, it just a small amount of literature was coming out. And my, my mentors, Dr. Uh, Jennifer Krzyzewski and Dr. Uh, uh, Daniel George, he both of them were starting to sort of pioneer these paths in which to investigate. And we eventually published on it and looked at central Pennsylvania and the way communities were involved with diseases of despair. However, my focus in the rural hospital closures came from one day uh, I, I, I've always heard on this podcast, you mentioning Becker's and Becker's and fierce healthcare are two things that I read every single morning when I wake up. And I mm-hmm. saw this headline on Becker's that said 452 hospitals are at risk of closure. And I thought to myself, okay, that's probably a gross over-exaggeration. There is no way that 400 hospitals are at risk of closure. That's like a, just a catchy headline. You know, how is nobody in absolute pandemonium if this is actually a risk? And then I started looking it up and reading the literature, and I was uh, <laughs> concerned to say the least, and I was kind of blindsided. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I really thought, why isn't this a bigger deal? And why why isn't this at the forefront of our minds? And as someone who's doing a lot of work with health systems, I I couldn't help but question, well, if it closes, what happens to everyone else? And then it came Mm -hmm. the idea of, well, if it closes, let's, you know, the community is obviously the first thing we care about. But then the next step is what happens to the hospitals that are closed, like Mm -hmm. that are close to this uh, closed hospital. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of opened my can of worms. And uh, I went down this rabbit hole and I found that, all right, if uh, I'm going to look at this, I I have to do a bit of brute force. I have to physically go through a lot of different databases and cross-section all of them and and really look into what's going on and create a methodology. And on the same time, one of the things that I really enjoyed doing was I worked with another one of my colleagues on creating a drone video project because one of the things I felt was very impactful is having a visual to all of this, because it's one mm-hmm. thing to see an Excel file full of numbers yeah. and then a paper written, which are all very impactful clinical scientific works. But then to see it actually happen, to see an empty pot of land with an outline of a hospital and the helipad still there, like mm-hmm. it was for Phillipsburg County, uh, Phillipsburg uh, Hospital in this in central Pennsylvania, that was really that that crushed me almost to see mm-hmm. what kind of resources were being taken away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're going to link to that video, by the way, in the show notes. Good. So our listeners, Good. you guys should go watch it. It's pretty, it's pretty powerful. I mean, it'll it'll give you chills to see that. Because to your point, it's like to know that hospitals have closed is one thing, but to look at what was a hospital and see either a shell of a building or you know that plot of land where you can see the helipads getting becoming grown over, mm-hmm. that really kind of hits you in the gut. If if just the idea of it hadn't already, yeah. Um. So. In the study, so basically you looked at 
specific hospital closures and then looked at the hospitals around them and looked at for a period of time, how were those hospitals impacted after that closure? And you refer to something called the bystander effect, but it's not what people traditionally think of uh, when they hear that phrase of the bystander effect, um, which I believe it turns out might kind of be a myth in and of itself or its origin story is a bit of a myth. But anyway, that's a whole nother topic for another <laughs> another podcast entirely. But in this context, uh, what is the bystander effect that you talk about and that you look at? So the, the bystander effect is a term that we use that demonstrates the, the effect basically that if a hospital is closed, what happens to the hospitals that are around that hospital, that are adjacent to mm-hmm. that hospital? And our initial impression was that if a hospital closes, then the surrounding hospital, the bystander, would something would have to happen. We didn't know what would happen. Uh, mm-hmm. Our hypothesis at first is that, yes, there might, there might be an increase. And that was what we were you know, initially hypothesizing that we would look at. And the issue, I think, is that a lot of people think, oh, yes, heads and beds, that's going to increase revenue, isn't it? That's going to help save hospitals. But then here comes the can of worms that a lot of people on the periphery don't maybe understand because they're not linked into the CFO or they, you know, they don't, the the finances aren't necessarily uh, a focus is that the reimbursement isn't necessarily there for those patients. <laughs> and right. w- as as clinicians, as as hospital administration, as staff, we we're never going to refuse somebody that needs clinical care. Mm-hmm. However, on the opposite end, there's this focus that we have to have on maintaining solvency if we're going to stick around. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. there is a type of case mix, and there is a type of service line mix that you have to have to maintain solvency and re- maintain higher reimbursement rates. And that's quite difficult, as as you all have spoken about, actually, in previous podcasts. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the issues also that we will tackle with that concept is the reality that around us uh, in the state of Michigan, uh, the number of transfers that are high into higher acuity tertiary centers, uh, we have patients that are waiting for beds. Okay, and this is a concern because if you were to remove those local hospitals that are taking care of at least triaging the patient right. in the ER, right? We have patients that have boarded in our ER, especially for days. during COVID. I mean, there were times oh. where it was bad. But I it's mean, even now. Now it's we see with... probably more mental health uh, people, men, mental health patients boarding in the ER than other conditions. Well, but it happens heart. with other we, things we, too. We had a heart situation. Yeah, we had two one. Weeks I think ago. seventy-two hours yep. for a non-STEMI, yep. maybe. Yep, non-STEMI, and unfortunately, the receiving hospital. They are booked. Every bed is taken. They're boarding patients in the ER. This will just intensify that issue. And then who is impacted the most are the individual patients in those rural communities. Mm -hmm. And it is for that reason why Rachel and I started the podcast, to elevate a level of awareness to this country about the dangers of rural hospitals closing. And that's another segment, obviously, but your study really it 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 capsulizes everything that we have been talking right, about right. and says here's the impact right. of what it happens goes, beyond the economic impact. Right, right. It of goes those beyond that specific community that lost its hospital, which is something I don't think we see a lot of no. 
research or information on because the focus is usually on what happened in the place where the hospital closed. But what what you were able to look at was, okay, but then there's there's now a vacuum. And where is all of that going? Where's all that patient care going? Did you look at any, were you able to identify with that, with the, that impact and that strain on those other hospitals or healthcare systems? Were you able to get a sense of how much of that was related to emergent conditions versus, you know, and, and I guess maybe this would be something to to look at, maybe not something that could be identified directly, but I don't know because I'm not a researcher. Um, but I would imagine some of that also has to do with chronic conditions not being managed and reaching the point of someone having an emergent or catastrophic health event. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's That's a great question. And what we looked at was both sort of inpatient admissions and emergency department visits. And mm. the reason that we looked at those specifically is that it's kind of the best way to, in, in, in this sort of general respect, I'm saying, it's, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, a good, it's a good way of getting an idea of what is the further impact of what's going on. And if that's from an increase in admissions or if that's increase in the emergency department uh, visits, that's a, that's a, that's a good, that's sort of like a canary in the coal mine, so to speak. It's a good mm-hmm. litmus mm-hmm. test of, oh, wow, this, this is, we're seeing patients go to another facility. Uh, the problem becomes how, it, with what conditions are they coming in with? And that's where right. the, 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 the barriers sort of to these data sets come in. Mm-hmm. These barriers mm-hmm. are that we can't get super granular unless we're looking at our own institution or unless right. another institution opens their books to us, which is a little bit difficult. And right. that's that's one of the problems. Um, mm-hmm. But that's that's an incredible question. Yeah, let's get into the weeds. Okay, I love getting into the weeds. Uh, and I think <laughs> that's where we find a lot of the merit. And so I, I want to get... Um, you know, directly involved in, all right, what were the outcomes and the conclusions uh, that you drew from your study? So what are the final results of the study? If I'm a listener right now uh, and I'm concerned uh, about closures and this bystander effect, uh, what, what conclusions did you draw that can raise awareness? So uh, our conclusion was, so I'll, I'll just go over briefly what the study was in a bit of a Please. more of a granular detail. Perfect. Uh, so Please. we had, we had 180 hospitals that we initially could look at. And those were the rural hospital closures uh, that we looked at between 2005 and 2016. Uh, so our parameters were that these hospitals had to be over 25 beds in capacity. Their our criteria for their closures is that they had to be fully closed like mm-hmm. not conf- you know converted to a outpatient not converted to emergency department fully closed and then after that the bystander hospitals had to be at least 30 miles away um okay. I'm sorry up to 30 miles away not at least up to 30 right. miles away and what we found was that with respect to geographic distribution 66% of the closures were in the southern united states 21% were in Appalachia, which is very important to us because Penn State, we're, we're in Appalachia. And even in, I'm in New York right now, still the Appalachia mountain range. Then afterwards, we looked at the emergency department visits and the hospital admissions. 
So the average emergency department uh, visits two years before the closure was about 3.59% in growth. So it was growing by 3%. After, two years after the closure, it rose to 10.22. So that was a tripling in the growth rate. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then the bystander hospital admission rate was falling 5% in those two years. It kicked in the opposite direction and went up by 1.2%. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the one of the interesting things I always, you know, talk about when it's outside of, you know, clinician researchers is that these some people also tell me that, wow, these are really small percentages. Is that really does that really make a difference? If you talk to anyone in revenue, if you talk to anyone who looks at the amount of volume, 1% Mm. or 6% in a different direction, a tripling of an ED admission rates, oh, that is is resources that are devoted to those patients. And that that becomes incredibly concerning. And imagine then if one of those other bystander hospitals closes, then the tidal wave kind of kicks in as well. We haven't studied Mm -hmm. that portion. But it is this sort of cascade. Now, another thing that we look at here is that, and one of the issues that we have here is we don't know how many people are lost to follow up. Um, these are people that are lost in that they can't get to a hospital. They can't get the healthcare access they need. So they just stop until a catastrophic event happens. And again, that's incredibly hard to assess. Because we have to see if they were seen at those hospitals, those hospital records are likely gone. And then we have to Mm -hmm. see if they come in with some catastrophic incident. So unfortunately, assessment in this realm is also a bit difficult. Mm -hmm. But you can kind of, you know, make some of those natural assumptions or conclusions that that likely has has an impact on those hospitals of and, and clearly the health of those people, too, because they're you know, if it's a chronic condition, for example, becomes much more complex and much more severe if they're not receiving that regular care um, once it leaves their community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what does this mean now that we kind of have this understanding of the strain on those surrounding hospitals after a rural hospital closes? What does this mean for rural hospitals moving forward? And what does it mean for those bystander hospitals, which may themselves be rural, depending on the context? Absolutely. And I, I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but uh, th- there is a high risk of a grim spiral. And the mm-hmm. reason for that is if there was something that was preventing these hospital closures, if there was a, you know some safety that said, okay, well, this is our capacity of rural hospital closures and we can't do anything more, then we could say that this won't continue. But unfortunately, with the certain circumstance that we have where everyone is experiencing heavy losses in this first quarter mm-hmm. and the previous quarter, and um, as bigger health systems have immense losses, we can see only how much smaller hospitals that are in between those critical access and academic centers, they're going to get hit the hardest. And as a result, mm-hmm. this cascade can start and it, it becomes mm-hmm. it becomes more of a... It becomes more of a projection at that point as far as how bad mm-hmm. the impact is going to be. But one can only look at it and, and make their own assumptions and say, this doesn't bode well if we don't do anything to stop it. So in your mind, and based on the study and the research you've done in your work in some of those rural communities, 
um, what needs to change to minimize this problem? And I'll give you some some thoughts here. Okay, <laughs> so so we have everything from politicians need to get involved. Eh, okay, from payers need to change. Okay, I can I can go along with that one. Yes, uh, the way that they're paying uh, rural hospitals uh, needs to be mergers and acquisitions. Totally disagree with that myself. Uh, that's not the answer. Is is having care now fifty miles away? For communities like Hillsdale that has no public transportation, it's impossible. Patients will die. Um, so I kind of teed it up for you a little bit. But in your mind, what needs to change uh, to minimize this problem? And no pressure. This is not None. the, you know, yeah, if you multi-billion, yeah. bajillion dollar question yeah. for the entire rural healthcare industry. Right. So if but you, here you go. But here you go. <laughs> Survey says. All right. No pressure. No pressure at all. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it's a very complex issue. It, from from a scientific and literature perspective, when you look at it, it the, ju- the jury's still out. It, it, we, we have no real idea what is what precisely works and what is precisely causing everything. And that's, again, us looking at the balance sheets, looking at the quality of care afterwards and, and examining pre and post effects at Mm. the end of the day, the market changes faster than scientific literature. And that's a difficult thing to compete against. And that's where business and science have a little bit of a disconnect where Mm. markets can change quarter to quarter, but it might take six months for publications to meet that rate of change. As a result, there's a lot of ways we can go down in, into this, you know, solution, solution bucket of, of trying to see what can work and what isn't going to work. As far as mergers and acquisitions, it, it, it's, it's very difficult to say whether they work or don't work. I know that I know your sentiment on this is that mergers and acquisitions is a no-go. And there's a lot of speculation as far as what do they actually improve cost of care? Do they further monopolize? Are there issues with the actual maintenance of these of these mergers? Will, will the hospitals even stay solvent? And again, what, you know, one thing that we're experiencing in Pennsylvania is that there was a massive diversified market about 10 to 15 years ago, and now everything is consolidated. Has that mm-hmm. increased the quality of care? I don't know. Uh, and the state of Pennsylvania is kind, kind of trying to work through that. As far as the rest of the country, if there's, there's a lot of ways you can argue for and against, but the problem becomes, does it actually help the community or not? That mm-hmm. a company that doesn't have direct connection with that community that has ownership of that hospital, that it does become part of their balance sheet. That's a high risk because there's no direct connection. There's no... There's mm-hmm. no uh, personal equity in that community, and that becomes right. the problem. Mm-hmm. On the other side, if you want to think about the payer end, well, the payer end both has government and private payer ends. And so it's very hard for rural hospitals to come and create that dialogue that says, well, I think you should really pay us more because inflation doesn't really work like it does out in the consumer sector where you know you, you have uh, – more increased transport costs for milk and eggs, and you can charge more for milk and eggs. That's not how it works within healthcare. As a result, mm-hmm. you you don't pass those costs along. So it has to be a renegotiation with the payer. And on the legislative end, well, that's uh, something that you know I, I know you all with the NRHA go you know and try to advocate for. 
but that sometimes is slow and sometimes the payout isn't as as great as as great as expected. So it, unfortunately, mm-hmm. there's a lot of ways to tangle with this, and there's no one right solution. But the clock is ticking. That that doesn't change the lifespan for these rural hospitals. And if you only have 200 days of cash on deck and you continue to hit losses, well, once you go past 100, things mm-hmm. start to get pretty finicky. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a lot of hard decisions need to be made. And it ends up to the detriment of the care of the patients and the health of the hospital itself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting what you said about the the quality of care when those systems consolidate versus the cost. And Harvard Medical School recently published a study, I think it was in December, on that very specific issue. And ultimately, the conclusion was the quality of care might be marginally better when a patient is seen in a consolidated health system versus a hospital, but the cost is significantly Mm -hmm. higher. So, you know, in my mind, that basically means juice is not worth the squeeze, essentially. Um, So, you know, I think that's something it'd be interesting to see, you know, additional research um, come out on that over Mm -hmm. time. And I hope that we can discuss that study in more depth on another episode of Rural Health Rising Mm -hmm. at some point. Um, But one of the other things I wanted to talk about, because I know innovation and care is something that you're really passionate about. And I, I have to tell you, recently, I have seen several articles and white papers from consulting firms talking about how, oh, well, if rural hospitals want to stay viable, want to stay viable, they must embrace change. They must innovate. But that assumes that viability has less to do with inadequate reimbursement and more to do with whether rural hospitals are stuck in their ways or not, um, which I think is a little unfair and, and it feels a little like, you know, victim blaming. So I want to preface this question with that's not what we're talking about here <laughs> for any of uh, any of our colleagues out there in rural hospitals who have felt the same way about some of that recent yeah. conversation. Um, we're really talking more about innovation from a big picture perspective for mm-hmm. rural healthcare as a whole in the United States, not Mm -hmm. just, you know, well, if your hospital doesn't embrace innovation, then you guys are going to close. And it's like, well, we could innovate as much as we want, (laughs) but if we're not getting paid what it costs us to provide care, I don't think that matters a whole lot, right? Um, So, but from your perspective, when we look at that big picture innovation in rural healthcare, um, what does that look like? So that's an incredible question because innovation is something that can start anywhere. A lot of people have this idea that innovation has to be at a giant level one trauma center, academic medical center that, you know, pours money into R&D budgeting and and just like has a giant institute for medical innovation. Medical innovation comes out of need. There's a need that Mm -hmm. needs to be serviced Mm -hmm. in that area. And as a result, the rural healthcare landscape is a perfect place for innovation to start. And quite frankly, it's somewhere that needs to be heavily invested and heavily looked at because I feel like that's the future of how we're going to navigate through this. Mm-hmm. You know, the the things that come to my mind always is first, I look at strategy. I look at how is this how is the system being deployed? What's the reach of to the community? And what kind of community ownership does this institution have? And Mm -hmm. there's a there's a deployment model that can as every institution has a chance at a successful deployment model. What works with rural health and what I've seen is that you go out into the community and you see what the community needs and you meet to satisfy that. The reliance on things like brick and mortar institutions where people have to come to you 
life is getting faster. Even in rural communities, life is getting faster. Life is getting more complicated. Things aren't getting easier. And so to be out there, to serve the community in a very direct and forward-facing way is extremely important. I saw that when Mm -hmm. me and my colleagues were developing the clinics in central Pennsylvania. When you had somebody that it wasn't just a phone call and a referral, instead they would come to your clinic, you would have eye-to-eye contact, they would see, Mm -hmm. yeah, come to our institution, we'll make you, we'll write up things, what can we help with right now? They had a completely different interaction with the healthcare space. And that developed more trust and that want, made them want to come and have their care with us more than anyone else because they felt we cared because we did care because we spent mm-hmm. our time to meet the community where it's at. I think one of the biggest things in healthcare that we have to stop assuming is we know what people need. We need to really come out and ask, what is this community need? How can we help with the health of the surrounding community? And how do we create a long-term relationship that then allows them to keep coming back for us to understand the needs of the community and create service lines to expand into that community later on when there's when there's an opportunity for it? And that's what Hillsdale's doing, right? <laughs> so it's great. Yeah. Please, please go ahead. No, of course. And then it's embracing things like I'm, I'm, I'm huge in huge in digital health, and I, I really mm-hmm. believe telemedicine platforms. And mm-hmm. hospital at home platforms, all of this is is a phenomenal, phenomenal innovation that's coming mm-hmm. in, in my generation that's coming into medicine. Yeah. You know, we're entering a new age where the people that occupy emergency department beds, that cause borders, that cause these systems inefficiencies, and they they can't get the care they need, but then back at home they're having trouble with medication reconciliation and things like that they can have direct access with providers without taxing resources in a resource-strained system. This is incredibly important because we want to serve our patients the best that we possibly can, but we also only have a limited pool of resources we can extract from without losing solvency. Mm -hmm. And so playing with that is incredibly important, and the way we can bridge that is utilization of telemedicine in very smart ways and very innovative ways. In developing technologies with partner institutions that can create more surveillance of people who have these costly, uh, costly chronic diseases that, you know, prevent them from coming back into the hospital that can, you know, keep them coming into outpatient visits, keep them consistent with their medications. It's all incredibly important. You know, Dr. Ramadani, we could spend probably two hours talking to you. I was going to say days or weeks, maybe. (laughs) months. Uh, And unfortunately, our time is coming to a close today. But I want to, number one, give you encouragement to continue fighting the good fight and broadcasting wherever you can uh, the information that you've gathered from your studies and pushing it out into our communities uh, so that everyone can hear that message from payers to politicians. Uh, most importantly to patients who understand in their rural communities the critical importance of utilizing those services locally and having access to health care that meets their needs. I do things much different than a sister county next to me who offers different services because their community needs specific services. And that's the unique ability to take care of our patients in a unique community like ours. And these communities exist across the United States. And so I want to thank you for the amazing research that you have done, but also for increasing the level of awareness uh, for this issue and the, you know, bystander effect, 
all the things that you spoke about, we have to elevate that. So my next challenge to you is to join Rachel and I uh, on a stage, and uh, we'll have the opportunity to do that, whether it's at Becker's, in which we will put together um, you know, a prospectus for that, uh, in the seminars that we're talking about hosting nationally. Um, and I would encourage you to give that some consideration. We'll be in contact with you, because we have to tell the rest of the story. You know, mm-hmm. they're going to look at us as the suit saying that you have a vested interest, but a third party who's done the research can tell us what the impact is on those communities. And so that is very intriguing to us to have someone like you on board. Uh, and so we would ask you to give that some consideration. And then third, uh, joining us again to talk a little bit more about, you know, the impact of this study and what we're witnessing some of the results uh, from promoting it. Um, and what is the awareness level in communities once they hear about the the bystander effect. So again, thank you for joining us today. I hope you take us up on those offers and would seriously offer that to you uh, to get this word out to a broader audience across the United States of America. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you all, and uh, that's this is an incredible honor. Thank you so much. I will definitely talk more about those opportunities, that's for sure. Thank you so much. And before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. So we want to know, now you're from, so you've been in Washington, D.C., and, you know, you've been in Virginia, and uh, you've been upstate New York, and so kind of some populated areas, right? Um, But we want to know, if you've spent any time in rural America, um, what that experience was like for you, maybe one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life, and it, you may not even have to experience it there, but maybe it's through some of the work and the research that you've done. In your mind, can you give our listeners a peek at that? What was your most unique? Of course. Uh, the, the current area, actually, I'm doing my uh, my transitional year at Bassett is at, in Cooperstown, New York, uh, home of the Baseball, uh, Hall, Baseball Hall of Fame. But it's really a one-stoplight town. So oh. this is, it, it's, it's in the mountains. So that's, you know, that's where I'm doing all my work right now. But I feel like the, the moment, the, the moment that I can think of that really brings out like rural community medicine is uh, one of the clinics we had in the middle of the pandemic where it was in Lycans, Pennsylvania, in the middle of a valley. And Lycans is about a population of 1,500 people. And we mm. worked, this was our first clinic with the local government. And we situated it in this banquet hall in the middle of this valley. And I have a drone picture of it actually, where it's, you can see two beautiful mountain ranges in the middle of autumn. And we had this amazing, it's one County road and we congested it. Unfortunately, thankfully the state police was there to guide traffic, but we, uh, we had had 500 people come through the, the drive-through clinic. And wow. it was an amazing thing to see because we serviced, th- we ended up finding out we had three counties come towards that clinic. And we saw how these communities in Northern Dauphin County were able to, you know, access this site. And with, you know, folks in the local government, they really helped us out with getting out the word and spreading the word. And it was really this community coalition in the middle of these mountains. And I feel like that was that really rural experience that, it, it really drives passion. That's for sure. It Pretty really awesome. makes you, you created a traffic jam in the middle of, <laughs> of a rural highway, huh? <laughs> yep. yep. Good job. Good job. Yeah. For a good reason. For, for a, a good, good cause. Reason. Absolutely. Good well, once again, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure, an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast today. 
Thank you so much. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Dr. Cheyenne Ramadani, alumnus of the Penn State College of Medicine and a transitional year resident at Bassett Network in upstate New York. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com. 